I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Connie McReynolds, Ph.D. Dr. McReynolds is the author of Solving the ADHD Riddle, the real cause and lasting solutions to your child's struggle to learn. So your child has been on Ritalin or one of the other ADHD drugs, and you're thinking perhaps even possibly for life. Or maybe your youngster has been diagnosed, but no amount of school behavioral therapy or special education is easing your child's struggle. Until now, the interventions that have been proposed for children who are diagnosed with some aspect of ADHD have failed to get to the root cause of ADHD. In other words, doctors, psychologists, administrators, teachers, and parents are treating symptoms, but not the cause. According to Connie McReynolds, PhD, the real cause of ADHD is that a child's brain has auditory and visual processing shortcomings. That's not a hearing or seeing issue. It's that the brain cannot full, fully hold or interpret the information coming in. She's a licensed psychologist, professor certified rehabilitation counselor, and podcast host of Roadmap to the Brain. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Connie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've been hearing and about ADHD for many, many years, uh, and it's still around and we don't have a solution. We don't, but you do. Okay. And so I guess the key, what is, I mean, we've been looking solu- for solutions for what, since we've actually had this diagnosis 20, well, longer than that, 30 years or more, I guess, right? Um, yes. Okay. So you're, you now are able to solve the ADHD problem with kids so that they don't have to take medication and drugs and and those don't work and uh, a whole list of other symptoms that kids have that are really negative to their brain growth, their physical Mm -hmm. growth, their psychological and social growth. Okay, I've said enough. I want to hear from you. (laughs) What is the solution? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you again for having me here, and it's yeah. a pleasure to be here to talk about this. So I really have been working on this for about the past 15 years and have published in some international journals about the work that um, I've uncovered. And it really started with parents showing up and, and telling the stories that they may have tried a number of medications, maybe the child did well for a while, maybe the medication stopped working, maybe they didn't work. Perhaps there were side effects to those medications, or perhaps the child just was refusing to take the medication. In other cases, behavioral interventions just weren't working. Things weren't lasting, and everyone was just kind of pulling their hair out, so to speak. And so what I started realizing is that when we run this particular assessment, it's a computer-based assessment. It takes about 20 minutes. I'm looking at a host of, of really processes for auditory and visual across 37 markers. And when we are able to literally dial in to the specific areas that a child has weakness in, and then through a brain training program, we're able to target those particular weaknesses. And just like going to a gym for our body, this program is actually exercising the muscles or the neuronal processes and neuronal pathways in the brain. And so you're actually, you were, I just want to take you back a little bit. So you're pinpointing this pox, mm-hmm. the, uh, particular area in the brain, which is causing the child or the youngster trouble. Uh, and, and I just to get 
go back a little bit. We have, I think, traditionally this kind of this, we blame the victim, we blame the kid, right? Mm -hmm. It seems to me there's that kind of that attitude. If you only did this, it did that besides taking drugs, you'd be okay. And you're saying, no, that's Mm -hmm. not true. There are parts of the brain, I just want to clarify that, that we can hone in on it and we can use this new, Mm -hmm. I think it's neurofeedback you're talking about. We can do something Mm -hmm. about it, right? Okay. Yes, that's absolutely true. And that's, I think, what makes the difference here is when we can figure out what the root cause is, like what's underneath the symptoms, what's underneath the behaviors, what are the behaviors actually trying to teach us or tell us? Because children can't walk into a room and say, you know, my my auditory vigilance is off today, Mom. I'm sorry, but I'm just not (laughs) tracking on what you're saying. I'm not going to say that. They don't know. No one knows what that is until it's uncovered. And when it's uncovered and we can look at that and say, this child has difficulty remembering what you are saying to him or her, and it doesn't kind of matter how many times you say it or how loud you say it or the punishments associated with not following through, if I can't remember what you just said to me and be able to process that and then respond accordingly or as expected, I can't do it. It isn't willful bad behavior. It isn't that I'm not trying. It's that I just simply can't do it. Is this related at all as you're describing it? I'm thinking about um, older people and Alzheimer's and some of these mm-hmm. brain disorders that happen later in life. And now they're actually able to look at the brain and say, oh, you know, you have these amyloid buildups in your vascular you know, system in your brain and that kind of stuff. Can you do the same thing with ADHD and it's a t- adult? I want you to also, we didn't really Mm -hmm. say, because there'll be people listening here, not sure what we are talking about Mm -hmm. when we say ADHD and and how big is the Mm -hmm. problem? I'm sort of, so. Well, the problem is enormous. So it's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And um, it doesn't matter the age. So I've treated a lot of adults with this as well. And really it's, it's kind of the impact of this in a person's life. Uh, waxing over to senior citizens, we do some work with cognitive rehabilitation. It's not exactly the same type of situation. So I wouldn't want you know a parent to think, oh my gosh, if my child has this, they're going to develop you know this later on. It's I don't think it's necessarily related, but they are processing problems. So both of these processing problems can be addressed if caught early enough in senior citizens and in children and adults who have the attention difficulties. Once we can figure out what this really is, there's something we can do about it. And that's the beauty of this, is that it provides some alternatives, a different way of thinking about these attention problems, and it's really about changing the narrative and the hope factor. So there's hope with this. We don't just have to rely on these more traditional interventions. Some might work for some people, but I have found in my clinics, the people who are showing up in my clinics are the ones for whom it did not work. So whatever has been out there or the parents who are not interested in going down the medication pathway. And I hear that a lot. It's like, you know, we've seen so-and-so and we don't, we just don't want to go that pathway. We want to find out something else. We want to get to the root cause of this. And the beauty of this is once we figure it out, once we train the brain, people don't need to come back. So when you're talking about hope, because I want to, hope means that there's something obviously that we know the cause and we can do something about it and there is a solution. Mm-hmm. What's the cost to the kids and the parents and the family and even the communities, the schools, if you don't treat it and you don't find the cause mm-hmm. and, and offer a solution, mm-hmm. say that you're doing in your practice, 
what are some of the well, things that we're we, looking at? Yeah, I think we see it day in and day out in our world. We have a lot of children in juvenile detention. We have them on the streets. They fail out in school. And uh, as I have mentioned in the book, research has shown that if a child hasn't learned how to read and is on grade level reading by the end of third grade, moving into fourth grade and beyond, they use reading to learn. And so if we haven't accomplished the reading skill set, then they are at higher risk for academic struggles and in some cases will not stay in school. And so then we have children who are falling out of school, uh, and we know that isn't anything good. And then the trouble that they get into and just the loss of that child's ability to be successful in the world, not from a financial standpoint, but that could be. But think about all the children who are sitting in these detention centers that may or may not have ever been able to learn how to read. And if you can't read, you can't succeed. So it's so important in elementary schools that children are struggling, we get this figured out and we can tackle this. And to again, back to your comment about not really blaming the child or blaming the person who's struggling, the adult. I've had adults come in and say the same thing. They've lost jobs. Uh, how many times they couldn't remember what their boss had said, and they end up being fired because they couldn't follow through. And once we figure out what these auditory problems are and we get that corrected, then their life changes and we see the transformation in the people's lives and the children's lives and the parents' lives, the teachers' lives. I did a pilot project in a school, and the teachers all shifted when they better understood why this child was misbehaving, so to speak, in the classroom why this little girl was having tantrums in the classroom, why she was breaking down crying, why the little boy couldn't sit still or couldn't remember. When we break down the auditory and the visual processing and we understand what that is, I provide these interventions in the book. Once you can figure out kind of what you're dealing with, you have a better shot at interacting more effectively with the child or the adult. If you understand, they can't remember what you just said. So... Well, you're talking about education, obviously, not just with the parents and the mm-hmm. children, but the teachers. It's, it sounds like, especially mm-hmm. in elementary school, it's a, a critical, I don't know what you call it, but mm-hmm. a training program that teachers have access to the information that, well, the information that's in your book, obviously, because as you're describing mm-hmm. the kids and the depression and the anger and the anxiety, the frustration, just simply being frustrated mm-hmm. constantly every day, it, it sounds horrific for these kids, obviously. Um, yes, it really you know. is. It's, it's a very, very stressful situation for the child, the parents, the teachers, really everyone involved. Is there because a hereditary no component really to this? Happened. Is there a hereditary well, component? Because, yeah, so many times parents will say when we run the assessment on the child and then providing them with the assessments, they'll say, gosh, that sounds just like me. Maybe I've had this and I didn't know it. And so... There could be some um, relationship. I haven't found it to be all the time. I think I see it, you know, part of the time. So, you know, we can't always work with. <laughs> I kind of joke with them at that point. I said, well, we do offer a family plan. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're wanting some assistance, they can get assistance. And that's the key here. People can get at this. We can get it figured out. Here's the question. How expensive is this? I mean, expense in terms mm-hmm. of schools or private 
you know, doing things, getting help privately, or are there clinics that are free or, you know, people come from all different kinds of obviously socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They do. Um, in my clinics, I do offer sliding scale um, fee on that. Um, so I do honor military service and I do try to keep the, the rates down. Insurance companies may or may not cover this and that's been part of the challenge. Sometimes people in other states outside of the state I'm in mm-hmm. may get some coverage for, for biofeedback. It's really an advanced form of biofeedback. It's EEG biofeedback. And every clinic is going to have their own price point. Um, so, uh, and whether or not they're using the same system I use, there are a lot of systems out there. And I will just offer a little caveat. I did put it in the book as well, that you really have to pay attention to who you're going to because not everyone's doing what I'm doing here, and that's fine. People have different approaches to things. We have a certain system I've been using for 15 years, and coupled with this particular assessment, I address all of that in the book. Uh, Really, what we have come up with is, I think, a very workable solution. There are systems out there that administer some type of stimulation to the brain, and the neurofeedback industry, you can, uh, there's kind of some debate as to whether that's actually neurofeedback, and there's some people who've taken a pretty firm stand on it that if you're actually doing something to the brain, it's not neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is actually just measuring brain waves that gets fed in, just like biofeedback measures your pulse and respiration. This measures brain waves. And you're interacting with the computer. You're getting instantaneous, nearly instantaneous feedback about how your brain is processing information through the system that we use. And with that feedback loop, you're able to enhance the production of certain types of attention and the brain waves. And uh, without going too much into it, yeah. But you're able to interact with that, and that's where the repetition and the learning takes place for your brain. So your brain really learns how to do this. Through what? that repetition, uh, then it's it, how the brain holds on to that. And what about the kids? Well, what's their response? I mean, give maybe you could tell us. <laughs> because, you know, as an adult, you're going to tell them and explain it, and they'll go and do what you're – most of the time will do what they're told. But you've got these little <laughs> kids in there who, like uh, – Oh, well, the kids love yeah. it. The, it yeah. It's actually a little bit the opposite because the oh, children, okay. um, yeah, actually just come in and they're going to be running the computer with their brains. They get all excited about that when they figure out they get to do that. And then we have low-impact, scientifically designed training programs that look like some video games, but they're nothing like what's out on the market. And I can make a distinction about that as well. And with adults... Uh, sometimes adults get a little sidetracked in their mind, a little more than the kids do. <laughs> they're sitting there thinking, I should be doing all these other things in my life today. And, and so we have to work actually a little bit more with the adults to keep them on track than we do the kids. Because the kids, the parents are really motivated <laughs> to get them to their sessions and get this taken care of. Uh, so it, it's kind of cute because normally uh, when the ch- child comes in, they're a little bit nervous. They don't know where mom and dad are taking them. and we don't wear white coats, and I'll say to them, you're not going to get a shot here. And then they just relax into their chair. It's like you're going to get to do computer things today. And, they and so they're all they're familiar easily. with computer stuff. That's their, <laughs> right? That's their ballywick. They know that. And they, yeah, as long as you're not going to give them a shot mm-hmm. or some bad medicine or whatever <laughs> it is. They, they figure be, that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So what what's yeah. the time frame? Mm-hmm. The time frame so for like, yeah. Industry. Yeah, the industry standard 
typically is about 20 hours of brain training. I break it up into 30-minute segments because I have found that you do too much, the brain's just going to get tired, just like going to the gym. You can overdo it at the gym. You can overdo it here. And so I've broken this into 30-minute sections, uh, typically two or three times a week. We'll do 10 hours of the brain training in my clinics, and then we're going to come back to those assessments that we ran at the beginning. We're going to rerun those to measure progress toward those goals. And I'm also gathering data as to how this is transferring into the person's life. So for parents, you know, I want to know, are you seeing any differences? And typically they do. Uh, the first 10 hours is a little bit of a ramp up on the process for the child to learn how to actually operate the system and kind of get into the flow of it. And the second 10 hours is really where we anchor everything in. Generally speaking, most children are done within that time frame. Some get done a little bit earlier, depending on how far we need to go. And for some children, we have a long ways to go. So we could take longer. And every brain is unique. So how it responds to the intervention is unique to each person. So we can just kind of, you know, I give people ballparks of where we are. And and that's about the best we can do until we really get into it a little bit to see how the brain's responding. So uh, that's interesting. Every brain is unique. Every brain mm-hmm. is the same, but is it the same and unique at the same time? I mean, as... <laughs> <laughs> well, the learning process is is the process of the neuroplasticity, which is a term that we've had for quite some time. We didn't necessarily understand the full intent of it or the meaning behind it, which neuroplasticity simply means our brain's ability to change. Our brain is very malleable. So everyone has that capability. Now, for people who've perhaps had a stroke or some brain injuries, they've had to create a workaround on that. Um, so that part of the brain might not be working, and that might be unique to that very specific person. But when it comes to learning, our brains learn in similar manners, which is through repetition. Everything from picking up a pencil, driving a car, walking across the room, we've learned this through the repetition of the practice to develop these neuronal pathways. It's also why a bad habit it's hard to break because we've created kind of this hardwired response pattern to our life, and that hardwired response pattern has to be rerouted. If it's a weaker processing pathway, such as what we're finding in some of these children, we need to strengthen that. In some folks, they are just missing these pathways completely on some of these areas, and so we're having to build that. And so by building it, it's going to take a little bit longer to build something than if something is already there and we're strengthening it. So that's why it's on a case-by-case basis. The training plans are all unique to each person based on what their needs are, this assessment. I kind of think of it almost as like a fingerprint because it's unique. There are no two people on the planet who are going to have exactly the same assessment results on this because each brain is unique. And so that's why I say we have a unique individualized training plan for each person, but the process that we go through is similar for each person. Okay, now I get it. We all have fingers and we all have thumbs, but we have a different pattern on, (laughs) we have unique patterns Mm -hmm. on our fingerprints, I guess Mm -hmm. is what you're saying, right? Yeah. So give us some of your case. I always like to hear a case. I'm a social worker. I like to hear (laughs) your case histories, like examples of maybe some of one of your toughest cases. And uh, that would be the, yeah. Well, we've had several, um, one that comes to mind, and I always like to bring this up, particularly if there are teachers or, uh, you know, professionals on the call, which is one of the stories that I write about um, happened to a young teenage boy who had been in special ed 
his entire academic career. Um, and he was placed there because he just had trouble learning. They didn't, you know, really know exactly what it was. There was some, you know, concern about it being perhaps intellectual or cognitive. And one day he was sitting in the library in high school and was completely bored and decided to hack the computer's school system and the database to change a grade. And that was really the first time that anyone knew this kid's quite brilliant. And he did get kicked out of that school. His father was in desperation because this little boy was also a young man, was also suicidal, uh, just desperate in his life, angry, an angry teenager getting into fights, having all types of social interaction problems. And just his father was at his wit's end. He brought him in and we found these auditory and visual processing problems. And once we got that corrected in the school year, the next year in his new school, he scored the highest on the MAP state test in the history of that school. And he had been in special education all the way up to that time because he was tagged as not being able to learn. And people didn't know what was going on with him. And I went out, you know, two or three months later after that, and he went with me to do a presentation to some parents. And he got up that day impromptu and just said, I want to tell you, this is what my life was like prior to uh, this program and the neurofeedback. And he said he would have ended up either killing himself or someone else. And he said his whole life has changed. He's gone on. He's been in college. He's done well with his life now. And that's just the criticalness of what this can mean to someone. And when we don't know what's really happening, and I say often, you know, the wrong diagnosis is not going to lead to the right intervention, and all the interventions in the world didn't help him through that school system because it wasn't targeting the correct thing. And so Uh, we have to get to the root of the problem. And I'm thinking about this young man, and, you know, he's probably, or as as we've been talking about this, I mean, he's probably tip of the iceberg. I mean, all the thousands of Mm -hmm. kids who suffer in this, which is what your book is about, um, who are suffering in this way. Wow, that's quite a story. I mean, with a good ending, but uh, that's a lot of years yeah. of you know, of pain. Yeah, and at, 15 years of that, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm thinking about also in the context of the family, what this does to the whole family mm-hmm. in terms of the relationship with the siblings, with parents, and, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes uh, uh, one parent sides with the kid and the other one doesn't and blames the kid, and then and that affects their marriage. I mean, there's this huge rippling effect when you have um, a mm-hmm. young person in this situation, which I'm sure obviously you see all the time. We really do. And there are a lot of parents in distress in the middle of divorces. Um, Some families can remain intact. It just is really, you know, the coping skills that they have. And it's not saying other people don't have coping skills. It's just saying it becomes overwhelming because it depends on just the intent of the intensity of the behaviors and what the parents are having to deal with in the schools. I just did an intake yesterday. Uh, This is a private school, and the teacher actually told the parent she needed to put her child on medication on day two of this year's academic program. Mm -hmm. And the mother is a teacher in special ed, and she she really um, took exception to that. And teachers really are not supposed to be able to say that. People in a public school, I don't think you can get away with it quite as much, although I've heard it come out of public schools as well. And it's people being at their wit's end. They don't know how to help the children. They themselves feel helpless or powerless in this process of trying to help children, and they don't have the resources they need 
to be able to do this. And honestly, if we could provide these kinds of assessments to teachers when I had that pilot project in the elementary school, I watched the light come on in these teachers because suddenly they knew what to do. They have good tools, but if you don't know what's going on with this child and you don't know why this child's having the tantrums or the meltdowns or can't sit in the seat and you're constantly looking at the behaviors and chasing after the behaviors, you're kind of missing the underlying causal factor, but you don't know you're missing it. You think you're chasing after the right thing. And oftentimes they aren't. And that frustration. My mom taught second grade for 32 years. I was a teacher in university for 25 years. I get the class and I understand that. And I know that teachers need more resources. And this could be a very valuable resource to them. When I did the intakes with teachers and parents at the same time, I could see the teachers start to relax when they realized they weren't not doing their job in the classroom. They didn't have a classroom behavioral management problem that was their fault. It was that we didn't know what this particular child really needed in order to support this child. If a child can't process what's being written on the whiteboard and get it down on a piece of paper, it looks like a lot of behaviors. It may not be. It may be this child has visual processing problems. So they can't get the material written down from the board. They can't follow what's being demonstrated or they can't follow what's being said to them. And they sit around, and here's what happens. When children look around the room and they see their little peers able to do something and they aren't able to do it, they go to one place only and they start telling themselves they're not smart. And they use really negative words. I hear children say, I'm stupid. I don't know how to do this. I can't learn. And it's like, wow, let's retool that. This is something completely different from that. This isn't about your intelligence. This is about a part of your brain that just needs to be strengthened. So we're going to put you in the brain gym here. And I imagine that the other kids also, I imagine the other kids, I mean, kids can be really mean or they can be really nasty. They they reinforce and validated, validate this kid's Mm -hmm. feeling about him or herself of being, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I can't learn. Um, We only have a couple minutes left. So let's, yeah, give us, this was uh, (laughs) very informative. This is, yeah. And so we want people to obviously buy the book. Tell us uh, where we can go, website Mm -hmm. or websites mm-hmm. to go to for more information about the book and about is, your work. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. My website is www. My name, Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, McReynolds, M-C-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S.com. So ConnieMcReynolds.com is the website on the front page is a link to my book, Solving the ADHD Riddle. You can click on that link there. Or you can go directly to Amazon. Uh, type in that title, Solving the ADHD Riddle, and you can get that. It's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And I did the audiobook, so you'll get my voice on the audiobook. Good. And we've already heard your voice. You have a great voice. So good. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Really, well, lots you. of good information for all of us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 